Welcome to another episode of Gerocast, a podcast that explores the lived experience of older adults. Today we will be talking about end-of-life options in Canada. By the end of this episode, you should be able to understand the current laws and processes surrounding medical assistance in dying. First, let's take a moment to distinguish between different categorizations of death as described by the Council of Canadians with Disabilities. Active death is brought about by an act and involves measures that directly cause a patient's death. Passive death is brought about by omission. This is usually done by withdrawal of medical treatment and the deliberate intention of causing death. Voluntary death occurs when a clearly competent person makes a voluntary request to be assisted in dying. Involuntary death occurs when a competent person's life is brought to an end despite explicit expression against assisted death. Nonvoluntary death occurs when a person is either not competent or unable at the time to express a wish about assisted death and has not previously expressed a wish for it. An example of passive voluntary death is when a patient has a do not resuscitate or DNR order. This involves a document signed by the patient that instructs medical professionals not to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR. So, in the event that a patient with a DNR request experiences a cardiac or a respiratory arrest, CPR should not be attempted. An example of active voluntary death includes medical assistance in dying. Canada's current medical assistance in dying, or MAID, law came into effect in June 2016. It seeks to respect personal autonomy for those seeking to access MAID while at the same time protecting vulnerable people and the equality rights of all Canadians. According to the Government of Canada, there are currently two types of medical assistance in dying available to Canadians. First, a physician or a nurse practitioner can directly administer a substance that causes the death of a person who has requested it. The second option involves a physician or a nurse practitioner that can give or prescribe to a patient a substance that they can self-administer to cause their own death. Currently, this option is not available in Quebec, but is offered in all other Canadian provinces. As of April 2021, there are several criteria that must be met in order to be eligible for MAID. According to the Government of Canada, in order to be eligible, one must 1. Be eligible for health services funded by the federal government or a province or territory. 2. Be at least 18 years old and mentally competent. This means being capable of making a healthcare decision for yourself. It also must be determined that one has a grievous or irremediable medical condition. Currently, Canadian law does not permit a person's wishes for MAID to be directed through a power of attorney for personal care. 3. One must be able to make a voluntary request 
for medical assistance in dying that is not the result of outside pressure or influence. 4. One must give informed consent to receive medical assistance in dying. From June 2016 to October 31, 2018, 6,749 Canadians had received MAID, accounting for about 1.1% of all deaths in 2018. Rules and regulations surrounding MAID are constantly changing. Please consult the Government of Canada's website for the most up-to-date information on medical assistance in dying. Today we are joined by our guest, Adrian who will be speaking about her experiences with end-of-life options. Now, before she joins us, I did want to acknowledge that the audio quality in this episode is poor. Um, However, I don't think that it takes away from the value of hearing Adrian's lived experience. So, without further ado... Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Adrian. Um, I emigrated to Canada um, about 59 years ago, and I met my husband the second day I arrived in Canada, believe it or not. He was a Canadian Army officer, and I um, then went back to England after six months. And he wrote to me every day, and I came back. <laughs> we got married, and we have three children, and uh, five grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. And um, we were married 56 years, and he got um, very ill about, oh, about three and a half, four years before he died um, with pneumonia and uh, he was discovered he had interstitial lung disease caused by not just smoking. He did smoke, but he had built a catamaran boat with epoxy and with no protection. And that really was the cause of his breathing because he became highly allergic to it. It was a very large boat anyway. That was in the 80s, but obviously it took its toll. And then he gave up smoking about... Oh, eight, I think, yeah, when he moved here, because he realized he couldn't breathe properly. But then one day he, he, he doesn't do much shopping, he didn't do much shopping, but he went to Costco, and about two days later he came down very serious, sort of pneumonia, bad cold, um, and he had to be hospitalized as far as I can remember. And they x-rayed and everything and, and they said he had interstitial lung disease and we sent him to a specialist marvelous doctor he was so so understanding and good and he told Ron that it would end his life eventually it's a terminal thing that just gets worse and worse um, and he did everything he could to make Ron's life easier with meds mostly prednisone but we had a whole lot of other meds for breathing apparatus and um, eventually, of course, he had to be on oxygen. And so we'd walk around the park, but very slowly, he couldn't walk fast. Um, but that got too much for him. Um, and one day he went down by himself down the road and he fell over. At that time, he, um, he was told by the doctor, Papillon, that he could no longer go sailing because he had a sailboat. 
and um, he loved his sailboat, and he loved his woodwork, but he couldn't go down to the basement and do it. Um, and um, so we sold his sailboat. Oh, that must have been tough, eh? It was very tough. Yes, he couldn't. He couldn't go through with it. I had to do all the dealings with it, and um, he was really upset because he loved sailing, uh, but he just didn't have the. He barely get up the ladder into the boat when it was off on offshore. So he gave that up and decided he'd have a motorboat because he could get to a motorboat. So he bought a motorboat. But um, I had to help him put the cover on every time we went out because it was just too much effort. But that was the year before he died, 2017, and of course the Following winter, he got worse and worse and worse. And um, the spring of 2018, he was he needed to be. We had this huge tank of oxygen in the hallway and two fillable ones. But he also had a one in the house that with long tubes everywhere. Wherever he went, he was followed by these oxygen tubes, and um, he couldn't go very far with the tubes. They were and then he couldn't get upstairs, so I had an acorn stair lift put in. And the Veterans Affairs paid for that. It was it was $12,500, and they paid for it. I couldn't believe it. Sometimes when he needed to go to the bathroom, he couldn't get to the stair lift in time. So that was a big problem. I, Lynn, I don't know if you know Lynn, they were, they were great. What kind of services did you have from the Lynn? People that came and sort of sat with him and gave him his meal. and um, But I had to walk the dog, so I'd had someone in to when I needed to go shopping or anything. Um, and veterans' affairs were absolutely fantastic. Right, because your husband was a veteran, he was eligible, is that right? Yeah, he was eligible, okay. yeah. And they still are. They're really good. Glad to hear it. Uh, I used to have help, and then I had someone in to do his feet and cut his nails, and um, someone came in and bathed him. We had to put in extra bath things for him to hold on to. He was very weak at this stage, thing, and he had a seat in the bathtub. But he could go up the stairs with, with the acorn, which is still here. The last few weeks, I guess, he sat in his chair. He really couldn't go anywhere and my daughter's uh, one daughter's in Boston or mum was in Seattle I had a son here and his hallucinations at night were getting quite serious um, he used to say people were invading the house he'd wake up in the night and he, he, he'd get out a knife uh, the, the police took his gun away the year before because he'd attacked my daughter thinking she was an invader um, so that's what happens. He used to take his oxygen off at night he, you know, in his sleep. And his brain wouldn't work properly. And that was, those hallucinations were pretty awful. And just before he died, he was yelling that there was no oxygen in the house. And it was getting absolutely hysterical. One day he pulled out his sword, his military sword, and said he was attacking the house. And, um, yeah, I don't know whether it was a military background, but he always had this feeling there were invaders. 
during the day, he didn't have these hallucinations. But it was just at night. Um, and then one day he was sitting there and he was, I never saw him cry about his, his illness, but he said, I don't know why I'm living. I've lost my boat. He couldn't watch television properly. I mean, all he did was switch channels. I mean, it really wasn't much fun. He loved um, A&W hamburgers. So that's virtually all he ate. And uh, so I'd get those for him. But he wanted his um, a drink. He hadn't been allowed to have drink for quite a time, but he always wanted it. And I thought, gee, you know, he's going to die any day now, and, and why shouldn't he have his brandy? I know he didn't agree with the medicine, but so what? He wanted it. One day he said to me, I don't want to live anymore. I really don't want to live anymore. And I said, yes. And he said, well, get the doctor's appointment and so he can finish me off. That was his crude way of putting it. And I said, do you really don't want him because there is such a thing as assisted dying? And he said, yes, I really want to. And I, my son and I took him to the doctor and he totally understood. Ron was perfectly with it, saying, I really, you know, I can't do anything. I can't do my woodwork, I can't sail, I can't boat, I can't do anything. And I can't even watch television, I can't read. Um, he said, there's nothing to do. So why am I alive? I'm just sitting there and not able to even get to the bathroom on time. Um, he said, it's, the whole thing's a humiliating and terrible life. And um, so McElwain, Dr. McElwain put him in touch with the doctor that does this. And he came out to the house and interviewed Ron. And, um, and this delightful doctor, he came and interviewed Ron and James and I for about two hours, an hour to two hours, um, to make sure Ron wasn't just delu you know, delusional. Anyway, and Ron was very, very good at the interview. And he explained to Ron that he would have to wait um, 10 days. And he said, what happens is, uh, in 10 days' time, a nurse will come in the morning and put an IV into your, your and you can have your family with you. He said, um, it only takes a few minutes, and you'll go to sleep. That would be the it. Uh, the idea absolutely horrified. He never left his chair. He sat in it um, permanently then. And I'd also got a commode downstairs right next to it so he didn't, we could get him into that, which helped a lot. Because he couldn't even use his the chair going upstairs at this stage. And can you remind me how old he was at this point, Adrian? 84. 84, okay. Let's take a moment to reflect. As Adrian has mentioned, currently in Canada, upon formally requesting MAID, one must wait a period of 10 days before the actual assisted dying procedure takes place. What are some potential advantages and disadvantages of this 10-day waiting period? How may this waiting period affect the patient or their family? Free to pause the recording for a few minutes as you actively reflect on your thoughts. 
as soon as the doctor said, okay, my daughter, one daughter drove up from Boston immediately, and Claire, uh, Lizzie, out in Seattle, flew out. Okay, so your a whole family was there. A whole family. He, he, was, he was hallucinating so much at night, um, fighting, you know, whatever strength he had less, and he didn't wasn't with it. Um, so he was always sleeping in his chair because he couldn't get upstairs anymore. And he was always cold, so we had to keep blankets on him. And he kept pulling his oxygen off. Um, and the girls took it in turns to sleep on the sofa. They wouldn't let me. I was upstairs. And um, then during that week, he complained terribly about waiting 10 days. Mm-hmm. Did that seem like a long time for him? It seemed like endless time. Then. It got him very, very upset and frustrated. And um, I said, but then that, Ron, you wouldn't have Claire and Lizzie here. But he, he wasn't really with it enough to realize. It was just so frustrating for him those 10 days. Then during the week, he had such a, an attack of delusional things. He was getting, found the strength to be quite difficult. The girls, James and the girls, called an ambulance and took it, had him taken to the hospital. And where, as he was really sort of angry, desperate, he just had no control of him. He didn't know where he was or what he was doing. And um, they put him in the room. And the girls wouldn't let me come in because he was he was so bad. He was throwing off his, he got all his clothes off and then started telling the hospital that electricity was all wrong and he needed to fix it. And things, just dumb things. He had no idea he was doing and the hospital were having a terrible time with him. And he fell over and hit his head um, because he couldn't walk properly. He was so weak. There he was with no clothes on. Um, my daughters were helping him, trying to get him back into bed. But anyway, then the next, that night they gave him morphine. Now, something I contend is that he was put in palliative care, and I went in first thing in the morning, and he was out like a light, you know. He was dangerous to himself and other people around him. They said, well, he just had a dose of morphine every, I don't know what, four hours or two hours. or. And I remembered a friend who, whose husband had interstitial lung disease like Ron did. And she told me that Charlie had died in hospital on morphine. She said they get, he was so bad, Ron couldn't breathe, he wouldn't keep oxygen on, and he was gasping for air. And um, they said that, um, she said, oh, Charlie, they just gave him more morphine and he died. Um, so they, the doctor came in and she, he said, um, he's not due for morphine for a little while, but would you like me to give him some more? I realized that that was their way of helping someone die. Mm-hmm. Helping someone along that path. Okay. Yeah, it was very good. And he was breathing very shallow breaths. 
then suddenly they stopped. Although it was strange, and I'm glad he didn't die at home, I'm glad he didn't have to go through the assisted dying, although, in my opinion, that was assisted dying. And just to clarify, um, this happened before the 10 days was up, is that correct? Yes, two days before. That was Sunday he died and he was to have the two days of the, I think, the injection on Tuesday. But, you know, all year long, that year, he was so bad and had so many hallucinations. I, keep, I kept saying to myself, why doesn't he die? I just couldn't see the point of it. Right. So did you think that um, assistance in dying ultimately uh, was the correct decision for him then? Yes, I didn't suggest it to him. Mm-hmm. I never suggested it to no. him. No. But when he suddenly said, I want to die, yeah. I didn't stop him. Right. Yeah, because I, I thought oh, for the last six, seven months, I thought, I want you to, to die. So what are your overall thoughts on assistance in dying? Because it is, you know, a relatively new thing here in Canada. Do you have any overall thoughts? I think it's... It's very important, and I think if people write wills ahead of time, or at least they're you know a living will, and they say if I don't know anything, if I don't, if I'm stupid, or you know completely out of it, like Ron was then, I think it should be allowed without question, even though they are compassmentous. If they've written that saying, when I get like this, I want it. I really think people have the right to die. And it's not very pleasant for the family, um, certainly to sit next to them and watch that injection go in. And I was dreading that. I mean, I really was. He wasn't dreading it. Right. That's something that he he wanted, right? He wanted, yeah. Yeah. And do you have any... Um messages you would share with healthcare providers who are involved with assisted dying? I know you said you had really positive experiences. Is there anything um, that you'd like to add? Yes. With all healthcare workers, his specialist, respirology specialist, was just delightful. He wrote very, very good reports. Pages he wrote. Yeah, I've got two to three pages sometimes, and he always let me have them which helped me enormously just to know what the doctor was doing. Some of the things I didn't understand, but I was, I was thrilled with the medical things and um, medical people. I, I didn't have one single complaint. It's something I think a lot of people have to go through. It, it's important. I know they have the 10-day waiting, which is bad for the patient, but it's good for the family. You know, I couldn't have had the girls there, and I needed them there. For sure. That family support is really important in a tough time like that. Yeah. I would support anyone in his position like that. And people in old folk homes, some of them are so miserable. They just want to die. They don't have that quality of life left, do they? Yeah. If you don't have the quality of life, of all the things you love to do all your life, what's the point? Sometimes... People don't get it, or the families resist. We have to be prepared. I had nothing but help all along. Well, thank you, Adrian, for sharing your story with us today. I am deeply sorry about the loss of your husband and really appreciate you taking the time to chat about it. 
So again, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I was glad to do it. Bye-bye. Today we've had the opportunity to hear Adrian share her story regarding medical assistance in dying within the Canadian context. She spoke about her husband Ron's illness and decision to choose medical assistance in dying. She also spoke about the impact that it had on her and her family, as well as the care that her husband received in the hospital. Keep in mind that the story Adrian shared represents only one perspective on end-of-life care. It's important for us to remember that every person has their own unique lived experience. Based on what Adrian has shared with us today, please answer the following questions for your group assignment. 1. According to current Canadian laws and regulations, what criteria would Ron, Adrian's husband, have had to meet in order to be eligible for MAID? How does Canadian law compare to that in other countries? 2. What roles can physiotherapists have in end-of-life care? If Ron was your patient, how could you assist him? How could you ensure that you also support his family through this difficult time? 3. What are some of the arguments to support assisted dying? Feel free to reflect on your own views regarding MAID. 4. Define quality of life. How may this definition differ between individuals? What is the physiotherapy role in maintaining quality of life? And what are some common quality of life measures used by physiotherapists? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of JeroCast. please visit www.rehab.queensu.ca slash Jerocast to access the full list of people and resources that made this project possible. Thank you.